Uh, well, it's Australia Day here in uh, England. Uh, it's not in Australia. It's one day ahead. But we thought we should mark the occasion by talking to a big name from Australian cricket. And we have got a big name for you. We've got the one and only Mr. Michael Bevan. Michael, welcome along to 98 Not Out. How are you doing? Good. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Looks nice and sunny down there. Is it uh, still the height of summer? Australia Day yesterday was perfect. It was about 30, 33 degrees, something like that. Uh, summer hasn't been great in, in Aussie. I'm in Manly, so it's a, it's a lovely place to be during summer, but it hasn't really eventuated, I suppose. So uh, what do you call it? An English summer. Yeah, well, here it doesn't matter whether it's summer, winter, whatever. With all this lockdown, we're stuck indoors. and uh, Yeah, and that's still going on, right? It's worse than ever. Yeah. Right. Yeah, kids can't go to school. People can't go to work. Pubs are shut. Oh, pubs are shut. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's 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 not good to hear. Well, I mean, we, we it's been fortunate for us. We've been lucky. So uh, you know, touch wood. It's uh, we wouldn't want to get to the stage that you guys were at. But uh, hopefully, hopefully, you can turn it around shortly. Hopefully. Well, the vaccine—they're rolling the vaccines out now. So hopefully, they'll get everyone vaccinated and then be able to. That will be the way out of it. So um, a little bird tells me that the reputation of uh, 98 Not Out has filtered all the way down to Australia and uh, words getting out amongst uh, all you Australian cricket fans down there. It's big in Australia. <laughs> I'm sure you would have... Um, I'm sure, sure, sure you would be keeping an eye on all the viewer numbers globally. <laughs> it is incredible. It, I mean, we get we get great guys like yourselves on and it just the audience just loves it and... Uh, uh, and, and really laps it up. And we've got, uh, yeah, Australia, South Africa. We've got a bunch of nutcases in South Africa that um, follow us closely and interact on the social media. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's really good to reach out to everyone, uh, not just in our local area, but uh, all the ways around the world. So let's, let's just start with a bit of uh, history and the history that you made uh, in the baggy green and in the ODIs and all the rest of it. So just... Uh, Let's go back. So I was just looking at your early life um, and cricket probably wasn't the, the sort of the natural thing from, from where you were growing up as a youngster. Well, I think, um, look, I, I'm not sure about cricket, but I mean, I look, I was definitely a sportsman, um, sports person. School-wise, I always sort of struggled through, made a bit of an effort, but I was always going to, well, I always wanted to play sport for a living. Um, so for me, the things that I did were were athletics, uh, soccer, football for you guys, and cricket. And uh, I don't know, so around sort of 14 or 15, I had to sort of make the decision about which direction I wanted to go. And I suppose at that time, cricket was the largest sort of sport in Australia. And I didn't really see sort of too many avenues for the other two um, directly. And so, you know, I just pursued cricket and... Uh, I was from Canberra, which didn't have a state team. Um, and I actually ended up being the first Canberra player to play for Australia. Um, and so I was fortunate enough that I sort of made my way through through the under-17s and 19s and made the Australian, Australian teams for those uh, after the carnivals and sort of got recognised and then was chosen for the Cricket Academy the second year intake uh, in Adelaide. Is it a, a fairly easy pathway in Australia? Over here, for youngsters trying to get anywhere near first-class cricket, there's a whole load of hoops to jump through and different 
grades and uh, under 17 this, under 19 that, and it's county, school, whatever. It's a long way to getting to county and national status. Is it, is it, it appears, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it appears more straightforward in Australia? Um, potentially, I think m- maybe. I, I mean, it's always hard work. It's always competitive. But I think the thing that I noticed in England, because I went over and played league cricket, predominantly up uh, north around Manchester, um, was that sort of those small clubs that have all the professionals or overseas professionals, they sort of then feed into the county, county twos, uh, and then from the twos to the ones. And so... And the team I played for it had probably one or two good cricketers and a couple of couple of you know and the rest were you know pretty ordinary. Uh, I hope none of them are watching. Um, but so so it's I think the identification system is maybe a little tougher in England because you've got all these smaller smaller areas and games that of differing standards. So it may be a little bit harder to identify sort of the good guys coming through maybe in England. I'm not sure. Well, you did break through and uh, and pulled on the Australian jersey. Uh, and according to my notes, 18 test matches and 232 ODIs. Um, what was the... Uh, why do you think you were more successful in, in ODI cricket than test cricket in, in, in your career? Oh, a couple of reasons. Um I think one, the selectors didn't want to pick me for tests, so that's that's always a bit of an impediment. Um, and I didn't score any runs. Uh, that's <laughs> another impediment. So I had, had those two things working against me. Um, I still was very unlucky. Um, no, I. <laughs> it was kind of weird because there's this. There was an article I think done on me a couple of months ago, and it was sort of this. It was sort of about a tortured genius, and it was was kind of weird because in first class cricket well let me go back and say the reason the major reasons why I didn't play more test cricket was because uh it was perceived I had a short ball issue uh and I didn't score any runs but you know look I played a lot of first class cricket where they have short balls you could still allowed to bowl two short balls and I averaged 60 for New South Wales so um look for me for me, it was a bit of an eye-opener and a bit of a journey playing test cricket and just sort of, I suppose the analogy I used was I was probably a little bit similar to a golfer who got the yips with the putting or something like that, except I kind of got it with the short ball um, and I made it into an issue that it wasn't uh, or shouldn't have been. And it's so it was something that sort of stayed with me throughout my career and I always had to overcome that hurdle of, a well, he's a one-day player and he can't play the short ball. Um, and, look, I, I could have got picked for Australia the back end of my career on any number of years, but because the Australian team was so um, was so uh, strong, there were just other guys to choose from. And I remember sitting down for a luncheon once with, I think Alan Lamb was invited. And so he was sitting next to me and, he wasn't shy in bringing up the short ball. He said, oh, the short ball, you know? Um, and so, and, and I kind of just quipped back and I said, well, look, if I had been playing for England at that time, I probably would have played 60 tests. Um, so I, I, I don't, you know, so I, I think there are a number of reasons, but I sort of went on my own journey and it wasn't the journey I thought I would go on. I was hoping and thought that I would play 100 tests. So anyway, yeah. 
we had Alan Lamb on the show um, last year, and uh, yeah, he's 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 not shy in coming forward, is he? <laughs> right. <laughs> and yeah, loves to tell you about how he faced Malcolm Marshall and uh, Michael Holding and those guys. Well, I mean, he was a great player, and he was a great player against Quicks, um, and he was one of my favourites. You know, in terms of watching from for England, you know, you can chuck uh, him both of them in that category, and. You know, they're the sort of guys and gal that I had memories of growing up as a young, as a young cricketer, and a, you know, this huge rivalry um, uh, between Australia and England. And look, you know, I played 18 Tests, but I was fortunate enough I was sort of involved with a couple of Ashes series as well. So that was not. Nice. You got an Ashes ton, didn't you? I don't think I got an Ashes ton. No, I don't. I didn't get any ton. I got 87. I. Oh, was My highest was 87, and I've got close. I got a couple of 80s, and um, every time I got to 80, I, you know, Glenn McGrath was at the other end. And so <laughs> I, was, I was no chance. I was no chance. Yeah, but then Glenn McGrath was at the other end for that, um, that famous last ball win against the West Indies, wasn't he? So, you know, he's not all bad. He can hold a bat. <laughs> he can hold it. He just can't hit a ball. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, no, look, his uh, pitch was, wasn't strongest batsman going around. Um, and, uh, yes, in the last couple of... It was the last over where Glenn came in sort of for that for that sort of one-day game that I was known for in terms of hitting the four off the last ball. And, um, of course, one of the things I had to, had to do, um, I mishit one and scamped through for a single early on in the over and then sort of mid-over I had to... Had Pidge on the other side and had to sort of work out how we were going to get back the other end to to try and finish the job. But fortunately, he he you know he he did catch a little bit of it, got an edge onto his pad, and it just fell out nicely for us to get through. So yeah, Glenn Glenn plays his part in that in that day for sure. And any any words with Roger Harper after that game? I know he high fived you, didn't he, at the end of that after after yeah. the little caught and bold incident. It was it was strange because the only angle that you could see that he actually dropped it was my angle, and I was just adamant that there was no way you could call that a, a catch, and no one else could really see it because of his position. So, uh, fortunately, you know the cameras picked it up. Uh, yeah, look, I mean, you there, you have so many instances in cricket where you have uh, verbal disagreements or things that happen, and you know, look. I don't know if the game's changed now. I do watch a little bit of it. But for, for, for me um, and from my perspective, look, I don't, I don't, we didn't walk um, when, I was, when I was playing um, because you, you'd get a lot of bad decisions as well. And so, look, there were times where probably everyone knew you were out and you knew you were out and you just, no one was happy except, you know, the batsman and you just sort of got on with it. And so... There's lots of altercations throughout the game of cricket, and um, most occasions you just kind of move on. Speaking of Glenn that McGrath, pretty, that was pretty <laughs> diplomatic. <laughs> we could have got on to talk about Stuart Broad, couldn't we? <laughs> just just speaking of Glenn McGrath, he made it back to um, Sydney because last I heard, he was stuck in Mumbai uh, working on the. He was covering the recent series for uh, Indian TV, and then when it was all over, he couldn't get a flight back down to Sydney. And um, when everyone else was packing their bags and heading to the airport, he was stuck in the hotel. So I was wondering if well, he... I, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure I heard that story, but I do know that, I do know that um, he, 
uh, during Sydney Test um, and the Jane McGrath Day, McGrath Foundation, which is generally the third day of that test. Um, you know, I, I didn't get out there, but I was pretty sure he's he's sort of floating around and doing his stuff for that. So I, I'd assume he's back in Oz now. I think I think he might have been back for a little while, but I, hey, I'm not not 100 <laughs> percent sure. We we were trying to persuade him to come on the show, but you've beaten him to it, so. We'll keep nagging away, I and mean, we'll get it. We'll get him eventually. <laughs> well, it sounds like you're going to get everyone eventually. We don't care. We don't. We'll ask. We'll ask everyone. <laughs> um, what's your your sort of favourite? Inter- have you got a moment that sticks out from uh, your international career? Yeah, I, look, I have a couple. I mean, I, I feel very fortunate, and from a team perspective, uh, you know, my first Test series in Pakistan, um, being awarded the baggy green. Uh, playing with some of my, my childhood heroes and shield heroes and uh, and then getting to play with them up in the flesh uh, and against a Pakistan team that had Akram, Yunus, Mushtaq Ahmed. Uh, so that was my first test series. So that'll always be a great memory. From a, from a team perspective, uh, it's very hard to go past the 99 World Cup in, in England um, where we had a few little issues um, moving into the tournament, lost the first two matches. And if you can recall, or, I mean, older older diehard cricket fanatics will remember, I think, and I don't think they do it anymore, but there was the Super Sixes for the first time that year and it sort of threw everything out. And so we'd lost two and found that um, for us to actually win the World Cup from that point in time, we had to win seven matches in a row. Um, and the team I'd played for, we'd only ever won three in a row. Up to that point, so to win a World Cup under those circumstances was a real memory. And of course, some of the games throughout that series for us were were was were amazing matches and great memories. Um, so from a team perspective, I always have those. From a from a an individual perspective, I guess I always have um, maybe slightly different memories to what I'm remembered for in terms of the last ball four. Yes, that's a huge memory. That's what I'm known for. And that's what everyone talks about, remembers me for. But probably a couple of matches that I was, that I felt that I hit them better or the circumstances were tougher. One was in Melbourne against New Zealand at the MCG. Uh, I think they scored about 250 and we were, I don't know if it was six. It sounds sounds ridiculous. Six for forty. I don't know if it could have been that bad, but it was pretty pretty dire. But we we had to win that match to to make the finals, um, which which we in Australia we do. So I was happy that innings. There was another innings where we were chasing three hundred in South Africa against a really strong South African bowling attack. Uh, that I was really happy with the way I played. But probably pound for pound, the best I ever hit them in a one-day match was a, a match that probably more people from the subcontinent recall, but it was it was an Asia 11 versus a World 11. And it kind of happened on the way, for me, on the way to South Africa. Um, and we arrived there the night before. We didn't, we didn't train. We didn't sort of warm up. We just got on. Um, it was a real flat wicket and they'd stacked their team with spinners and they scored 330 um, and we were two for seven or something like that um, and I got 180 off 130 deliveries um, and we ended up tying the match and I think we would have won it if 
if not for Andy Caddick not sliding his bat right at the end. So from my perspective, that was the probably pound for pound the best I, I ever hit, hit them in one-day cricket. I will have to post the link. That must be on YouTube. We'll post the link and uh, people can go and, uh, and have a look and, uh, and, and see for themselves. And then you, you had a bit of time in England, like you mentioned. Um, what are the differences that you found personally uh, between playing in England and playing in, in Australia? <clears throat> well, look, I mean, I always enjoyed my time playing in England. I played a couple of uh, years for, in league cricket. I, I played for a couple of counties and it was all really enjoyable. It wasn't easy work because you would play inevitably you'd play five days out of seven. Um, and so that was kind of the difficult aspect. Um, at the start of every season, uh, you know, it was a real challenge for the batsmen early season in England with the ball, um, you know, the wet, wet weather, ball seaming around, hard to hit through from an Aussie perspective. But I, you know, I, I of course was second, the second pro only in Yorkshire after Tenduka. Um, so, look, I've, I've had really good memories of England, really enjoyed my time. I was fortunate as a young player to, 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 to have the opportunity to, to have two seasons and work on my game in different conditions and different environments. So, no, I'll, I'll always have uh, great memories of playing in England for sure. We've had a few um, Aussie greats come through uh, uh, wearing the Essex shirt. I mean, Siddler's the latest, uh, Zamps. Uh, recently, it was Amps. Did he's a Brentwood boy? Yeah, um, and then going back, AB uh, in the uh, in the eighties, uh, often seen around a few nightclubs as well. Not <laughs> not the, not they, the, they used to say that about cricketers. Funnily enough, <laughs> no more. <laughs> not with social media. Oh yeah, <laughs> nah, that sort of stuff changed as I was coming through. Yeah, that's right. Let's let's come up to date a little bit. Uh, there's a couple of things I want to talk to you about. One of them, though. Um, is um, your website, which I've been looking at today, battingmentor.com. And uh, look, my son, my 16-year-old son has been looking at it. I've got sheets of notes. I told him, go and look at it. And he's made all these notes from looking at the website. So um, tell us tell us about Batting Mentor. Yeah, well, look, it's, it's an online batting men- mentoring service that I that I've recently just launched. Um, and I suppose one of the reasons why I launched it was I think maybe maybe the cricket world and maybe cricketers are ready for the online sort of stuff at the moment. We've sort of got a lot of cover drives and pull shots being, and sweep shots being played on YouTube, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a lot of good information out there, but that's not really the space that the batting mentor and the services and the products I provide. I mean, the, the service is based on my career and I try and share with cricketers either through one-on-ones um, uh, or through group, group, group weekly live streams um, the principles that I use to perform. So not so much to play a cover drive, but, you know, the types of mindset you need, the game plans you need, what goals you should be setting, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm sort of the troubleshooter or the guy that comes in um, if if players are unsure about how to improve or, you know, they're getting stuck in the 20s or 30s and don't now know how to score big hundreds 
uh, or they're, they're not making the teams that they want to make or they want to get out of a run of form. So I'm kind of sharing all my principles and secrets with them um, live, uh, either one-on-one or in group sessions about, you know, their approach, how they should approach it, what they should be looking at, um, and really taking it a bit more of a sort of a holistic approach around why and how people, you know, really score more runs in cricket. When you were playing, did, uh, I've not asked this question for a while. I used to, I used to make sure I asked that to everyone, but, um, so two, it's a two, two heavy question. It's one who was your greatest teammate that maybe you learned the most from where you just thought, wow, this guy's a legend. Uh, and who was the most formidable opponent? That's a that's a really good question, and I think a, a couple of things on that is that <clears throat> sort of Steve Steve Wall went through something similar that I went through in his Test career, and he came out the other side as a stronger player, and he was always very very supportive and encouraging, and adamant that you had to be really honest with yourself in terms of. Um, uh, what's going on with your game and what you need to do. And so that was a sort of a key cornerstone of what I got off Steve. Again, very fortunate to be a part of the Australian cricket side, which was a great cricket side, which had a lot of great mentors, a lot of great leaders that I could absorb information off. And it was a little bit like that with when I first started playing cricket. I first started playing, even though I was from Canberra, I started playing for New South Wales. It's the biggest and the most successful state in Australia. So we had a history of of winning. And what you tend to find is when you're in good teams, your learning curve becomes a lot quicker because uh, because your fellow teammates are interested in how you're doing. They've got a lot of good information. Um, So I've always learned the most out of all the good teams I've really played for. Uh, In terms of the most formidable opponent, well, this is strange, and this is what I mean by being in form or out of form and how I struggled throughout my career and how I worked out how to get around it. So I played 18 tests, but I, I effectively played two test series against England, one against Pakistan and one against the West Indies. Now, I averaged 10 against England in six tests, and I averaged 60 against Pakistan, and I averaged 50 against the West Indies who arguably had stronger attacks. And so the difference was against those teams, the teams West Indies and Pakistan, I was in form. In Against England, I was out of form. So I've always found that it actually doesn't matter who you're playing against. If you're in form and you've got control of your game, everything seems a lot easier than if you're playing someone out of form who could be a a lot less of a quality bowler. So that's what I've always found. So my formidable opponents in test cricket were England. Um, My in one day cricket, I suppose in terms of scoring rates and strike rates and trying to rotate the strike, one of the bowlers I really struggled with was a guy called Saclay Mushtak. Oh yeah. And he, he was just, he was just, I just found him really difficult. He just sort of bowled quick, fired a minute at my stumps, set the set the right fields. And so he was one of the guys that I really struggled to rotate and score off in in, in my one-day game. You've named some pretty, or you've alluded to some pretty quality bowlers there. And you know, there's Wazim Wakar. I assume the West Indies squad was probably Ambrose and Walsh. Um, 
probably still around at that time, Saki, obviously. Um, is there an element, and I guess thinking about your, your mentoring now as well, is there an element of um, focusing your way into, um, into form? And was there, you know, your, your struggles against England, was that, was that something maybe to do with thinking these are lesser bowlers, I don't have to concentrate as much, maybe not consciously, but subconsciously? No, no. It was kind of more that I didn't know enough about my game and I didn't know enough about my mindset. Um, and I wasn't in great... I, I was putting a lot of pressure on myself when I was playing against England um, and I wasn't confident. And so for me, it was kind of more of a mind mindset during those series. It wasn't quite that I was taking them um, for granted. It was just that I didn't have the consistency in my game at that point in time. And so, you know, one of the things that I, you know, help cricketers learn, batsmen learn, is that um, what what is mindset and how does it relate to practice in matches, walking to the crease? Kind of specific, so they're not floundering. So they're saying... Like I've been through it all. So I say, this is what you need to do to, you know, to improve your confidence or um, to get in a better frame of mind or to be, to be uh, ready to go when you play a match. And so they're all sort of the experiences that I had in my career that I've learned how to deal with that I can impart. And so I guess the idea is rather than players, which I did, I mean, I spent, from the age when I got selected for Australia, 24 to 27, but probably earlier than that, I spent the better part of the first seven years of my professional career with real swings in performance. Um, and then the back end of my career, I didn't have those swings. I sort of went down a little bit and then up and a little bit and then up. And so that was a real learning experience for me. And so one thing I feel as though I can, I can help cricketers with and batsmen with is is how to ensure that their consistency is, is always there, um, you know, and just help them really with their game plans and um, self-awareness, those types of things. So, um, yeah, that's kind of the space, space I'm, I'm coaching in and it's because of the principles and the sort of the tips and the secrets that I sort of learnt during my career that, not many coaches or not many players have gone through or know about. And so hopefully I can just, you know, if someone's really struggling and really inconsistent, um, like I was, I can just sort of narrow the learning, you know, really minimise the sort of um, the downtimes and maximise the sort of learning curve, I guess. But Darren mentioned the, the website earlier, presumably, obviously websites are available globally, but presumably the mentoring is available globally, is it? Yeah, uh, battingmentor.com is is a glo it's a global service and I just get I guess with the advent of of um, well probably the lockdowns and COVID and everyone getting online and using Zoom and Crowdcast and all <laughs> like we're doing now I think it's just I think we're all just becoming more familiar it's becoming more of a necessity but I suppose when I looked at before I launched and was working out what I would offer. Look, as I said, there are a lot of free clips out there on the cover drives and, you know, the hook shots and, and it, it's all pretty good information. And, and then there's a lot of programs out there that you can buy for, you know, 
49 pound or 99 pound about you know cricket cricket batting programs or but I think one of the things that I wanted to do I wanted people to have the opportunity to speak with me face to face um like you guys are doing now and for it to be a more real experience uh, a more intimate experience and a more real-time experience and so yeah look my I have a one-on-one mentoring service that would just be you know similar to this then a group weekly live stream um which would be for 30 minutes and we just talk about issues that players are are going through um what's working what's not working and I don't really I don't feel as though I want to spend every week with them I think my service is more when they don't know what to do to improve their game or they're struggling to implement the cover shot, the cover drive in their game. Then I can talk to them about not the technique of the cover drive, but why they're not introducing it into the game as they would like. So, um, so it is global. Uh, it's very intimate. Um, they'll, you know, cricketers will get access to me every week. They'll get my knowledge on, um, and, and my experience and all the things that I went through to improve my game, you know, and both good and bad. So, you know, they, they get all the secrets that I used in one day cricket, but they get all my learning experience that I, that I had in test cricket as well. And both are very similarly important. Completely changing the subject, completely. I've got two words for you. Hammerhead. <laughs> I love Hammerhead in Australia and presumably in England as well. <laughs> so the Masked Singer is wildly popular in this country. Uh, the second series has just started. And because no one can go out and there's nothing else to do, everyone is watching it and everyone is hooked. Of course, why and- else would you watch it? <laughs> well, we haven't had any test crickets on there as yet, but a certain M. Bevan was... The hammerhead, I believe, and the in the Australian version. Yeah, it was a slow period for me in Manly. <laughs> I was sitting at home and I got the offer and I thought, hey, let's just dress up as a shark and try and sing on national TV in front of because there was actually no judges because of COVID in Melbourne at that time. I was actually like, I think I would have preferred to have sung in front of a couple of hundred people in terms of the audience, but it was only the four judges. So here I am sort of singing in front of four judges on an empty stage that they're sort of trying to make look really, you know, beautiful. Um, so it was, it was kind of a, well, it's a confronting experience because you're out of your comfort zone. Um, and, 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 and so it's something that you don't want to do too often for sure. <laughs> it looked like good fun. I've watched it on uh, YouTube and uh, yeah, you look like you were enjoying yourself and the judges, uh, seem to appreciate your efforts and I've heard from other people that you don't mind getting on stage and singing a song so look I guess I guess that was actually the funnily enough that was the second reality singing tv show that I've done since I finished my career um but I would probably funnily enough I would only do those ones like because I know I can sing a little bit so I don't I don't, I'm more comfortable doing it. Whereas if someone said, look, go on dancing with the stars or I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. I mean, I just would, would have no, I, I, I couldn't and wouldn't make the decision to do those things. But, and most people have a fear of singing or getting on stage, but I know I can handle it all right. And I know I can get away with it. So I'm probably more likely to do something like that. Um, 
Sounds like a collaboration with Mark Butchers in the reckoning here. <laughs> well, yeah, I think there's, I mean, I know Mark's a bit of a musician and I, I think he's got a good voice too, hasn't he? And yeah. Maybe is it, is it A.B. De Villiers or, uh, but I, and I think maybe even Steve Smith is. Um, yeah, he's, he's, he gets a guitar, doesn't he? Yeah, I think so. So, um, and of course, in my era, there was a band called Six and Out where Brett Lee played in with a bunch of cricketers. So yeah, yeah, uh, it happens. It happens. I wasn't <laughs> the first. <laughs> well, listen, um, it's great to see you still uh, performing, and um, we'll give this. Uh, well, well, we'll put the link uh, just down here, right, BattingMentor.com, and we'll encourage everyone to go and look at it. But um, we uh, we've got to wrap it up. Uh, Michael, it's uh, it's great of you to give us so much of your time this evening. I'm fascinating listening to your thoughts and uh, and some of your experiences down the years. And uh, are we going to see Hammerhead again? No, I don't think so. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're well, all the way from Australia, Michael Bevan. Thank you so much for joining Nineteen.